This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's show is being recorded live in Canberra, the nation's capital. Today's big question, is there hope beyond cure? We asked this question today to David McDonald. Now, Dave is a long-time Canberra resident, uh, church pastor and former chaplain to the Brumbies Super Rugby team. He blogs at macarisms.com and he joins me now. Please welcome David McDonald. Thanks, Rob. Well, Dave, welcome to, welcome to Bigger Questions. It's good to be here. To kick up Bigger Questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Now, today's big question, is there hope beyond cure, deals with suffering. And without trying to trivialise suffering at all, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about the English rock band, The Cure. Now, Dave, do you feel qualified at all? Are you a fan of The Cure? Uh, absolutely. Yeah? Oh, good. Well, okay. Well, there's two questions, <laughs> both multiple choice. We'll see how you go. Question one. The Cure were not always known by that name. What was the original name of the band? Was it A, Easy Cure, B, Hard Cure, C, No Cure, or D, Beyond Cure. So what was The Cure known by uh, previously? What was the original name of the band? I'll have to guess. Yeah. No Cure. Uh, you want to guess again, perhaps. Okay. That's, that's, All right. that's not uh, correct, unfortunately. It, okay. it's, yeah, uh, I was just, just uh, practicing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a good warm-up. How good. about Easy Cure? Easy Cure. Correct. Yes, oh. it is. It was. Easy Cure. Uh, apparently the name was changed because the lead singer thought Easy Cure uh, sounded too American and too hippie-ish. So the name was changed to The Cure. So, question two. The Cure entered a BBC music competition, Band of Hope and Glory, in 1978. Now, they didn't win, but what did the rejection letter they received say? Was it A, we didn't like your songs, not even people in prison would like this? Was it B, I hope this reply isn't too much of a bring down. When you sell your first million albums, you will know we were wrong. C, Guitar groups are on the way out, or D, there is no hope for the cure. So which of those, was the, which of the rejection letters did they receive? This is, pre, um, this is a pretty hard question. Well, I think it would be very cool if it was the last, but I don't think it was But D. it wasn't the last. No, yes, no, no right, I, yeah, I figured yeah, that. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I'll probably take a punt on A. A was actually told to them, but it was in a different context. So maybe yes, if you want yes, to go to the of course, yeah, of course yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, a was what a Hansa executive, which was their first recording label, said to them in 1977, the year before. So maybe you could try B or C, B, perhaps. Yeah, yeah B yeah, or C, yeah. yeah maybe, I, uh, maybe go for the I, I've first. got a feeling that guitars might have been on the way out. Yeah, that was for the Beatles. Yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah of course. <laughs> yeah, well, look, let me think about it. I, <laughs> I've got a feeling it might have been B. It was, yeah. yes. That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, they were said that they were, when you first sell your first million albums, you know, you'll know that we were wrong. And they've gone on to sell in excess of 27 million albums. Now, Dave, maybe you know about other cures because you nearly got uh, one of... Actually, you didn't get any of our questions right, I'm afraid. But it was a hard quiz, I'm afraid. But anyway, big round of applause for Dave anyway. <laughs> so, Dave, The Cure are a band which write and perform songs. But you were faced with a situation of needing a very different kind of cure because you, you were packing up to leave Canberra at the time. So can you tell us what happened? The way that it happened is I was sitting with friends and we were chatting in a coffee shop and I started to realise that I couldn't feel my left side properly. I was growing numb in my arm and my leg and I'd had a bit of a pain in my chest for a few weeks and a bit of a pain in my back and 
When I mentioned the numbness, uh, a friend said, quick, we've got to take you to hospital. Yeah. Uh, he, he thought I was probably having a heart attack. Yep. And in fact, uh, he advised the friends that were driving to take me straight in to emergency and say, query heart attack. Mm-hmm. And I've since learned that if you want to get attended to in hospital, that's what you say. But it wasn't the heart. Uh, it turned out to be the lungs. And I had no idea. Right. Yeah. Okay. So what happened after that? So you were obviously in the hospital there. They were doing yeah. some tests. Yeah, they, they kept being bugged by the fact that I said I had this pain between the shoulder blades. Um, it can be a symptom for an aortic rupture. Mm-hmm. An X-ray showed nothing. Uh, they took me then into a uh, have a CT scan and uh, there was a bit of a conference taking place around my bed after that and uh, I can still remember the senior doctor saying, we think you have a tumour. Okay. And what happened after that? Well... did they Obviously they tried to confirm that. Yeah, the, um, the presenting symptoms were the fact that uh, there was in fact uh, a tumour, a lung tumour, uh, on the outside of my left lung. It had ruptured and there was a build-up of fluid around uh, the rib cage and uh, two to three litres in fact. So they told me that's they were going to... That's a lot of fluid. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, they drew out the fluid and later I was operated on uh, to put in some tubes to drain that and also to find out exactly what it was. And the confirmation was that I had stage four non-small cell lung cancer. So what, is, what does that mean? That, that sounds pretty serious. It is. Uh, the staging of cancers, stage one is, is normally localised and uh, operable. Yep. Uh, through to stage four where it's metastasized into other parts of the body uh, in the case of lung cancer wasn't considered to be curable. Yeah. So you heard the doctor say these words, tumour incurable yeah, um, yeah how did you feel when you heard those words uh look i discovered i had tear ducts both times <laughs> right, okay. and, and that my throat could create a pretty good knot right um literally to to hear that uh, i had cancer in the first place was devastating mm-hmm. uh, we we thought we were making a major midlife change yep. we'd lived in canberra for around 20 years we were moving to the north of australia to start afresh and uh Everything was go. You know, all mm. our belongings were up in Darwin. We'd bought a house. Kids were going to go to school. Uh, my wife had a job. We had a team of people uh, prepared to come with us. We were actually hoping to plant uh, a new church uh, just south of Darwin. So we were looking to a future and now I was being told that I had cancer. It was like being mm. sentenced to death. Wow. Uh, and then to hear that it was incurable, I, it just didn't make sense. What, yeah. what, what do you mean? Like, I got sick before, but... You get sick, you get better. Yeah, that's right. And now I was being told, look, we can't. It, yeah. it, there's no treatment for this. We, we can give you chemo perhaps, uh, but it's not going to be curative. It, it might prolong life for a little bit, mm. but that was all they could offer. So you were told that you had incurable yeah. stage four cancer. Yeah. So how long did they give you to live? I made the mistake of asking that question. Right. Um, Why is that a mistake? Well, it's a mistake in what, because they're not... They don't have a crystal ball. They're not mm-hmm. God. They yep. don't know. And we place so much emphasis on the statistics, you know, like we want to know is there a 90% chance of survival or whatever. But he, he was really a very straight shooter and he just said, look, uh, 10 to 13 months. Wow. Uh, I was gobsmacked, literally. Tears started again. Seriously, he said, yeah, you'll probably see next Christmas. And this was just before Christmas? Absolutely. And yeah, I seriously thought that was it. Mm. It's all over. What hopes were there for you medically? 
It wasn't until later that we talked about options. But those options, they, they weren't curative options. Sort of palliative. Well, that's what I said. Is it just palliative? And they, they were a little cautious about using that word uh, because I wasn't at that point on death's door, or so it seemed. Uh, but the idea of giving me some chemotherapy was literally symptom relief. Right. They worked out a, a particular kind of cocktail. Again, my wife uh, influenced the doctors to look at other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, we worked out a cocktail that wasn't going to be given to me by the public hospital. We had to go to a private hospital and pay for it. Mm. Um, this is a medical cocktail, isn't it? Uh, it's yeah, just, sorry. It's just not, not an yeah, sort of yeah. alcoholic this, this cocktail. Is, <laughs> exactly. This is one you kind of put into veins. Right, yeah. Uh, chemo, uh, rat poison, you know, it's, it's right. seriously toxic stuff. Yeah. And uh, I had four courses of that. And I was on the front edge of, of what they were starting to think – if it worked, say, for four cycles or six cycles, maybe in some cases a maximum of eight cycles, maybe we can dial it back and, and, and remove the most toxic things and give what's called maintenance treatment. So that's what happened. For me, it was a three-weekly cycle from the January onwards. I'd, I'd go to the hospital, I'd have the chemo, I, I'd feel, yeah, a bit strange, but within a day I'd, I'd feel like I'd been hit by a truck. Mm. Uh, Have I, you had that? Hasn't happened to you before, though. I suppose not too many trucks. Not too many trucks, but no. obviously you felt pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The um, like a severe case of the flu with a whole bunch of other things thrown in. Yeah, and that was my life. Three weekly cycle, but after those first four, in my case, they said, "Well, let's give you maintenance." So they dropped out one of the drugs, kept going with two others, and and they'd give me a scan every three months. Mm. Uh, so how are you? How are you feeling through this whole yeah. process? Not only just really the fact that now death is potentially quite imminent but also now going through this horrendous treatment what, yeah, what things yeah. were what things were you feeling pretty bad uh, I went into hospital feeling a bit off mm-hmm. uh, but in all seriousness within a week and a half of being in hospital I I seriously questioned whether I was coming out of hospital mm. uh, and so did my wife from a medical perspective my body went into shutdown I didn't respond well and I'm on painkillers, I'm having hallucinations that frightened me to death almost. Uh, and it didn't matter whether I was awake or asleep, my eyes shut or my eyes open, so this is all going on. Uh, my, my family are with me daily and I had, I had three uh, teenage children and one had just, just gone above the teenage years and uh, devastating to have to sit and talk with them about the fact that, that dad's dying. Mm. And it's one of the hardest things I, I, I've ever had to do. I, I, I'd been a pastor of a church for years and I was familiar with death. Mm. I, I'd taken funerals. I'd, I'd sat with people at, at their bedsides when they had cancer and were being reduced to a shadow of themselves. But I wasn't prepared to face that myself. Mm. As people, we're complicated in that you might have a stressful day at work and then you've got a cranking headache or you've got knots in your shoulders. Well... Just imagine magnifying that. You've, you're being told that you're dying, you're being told that you've got an incurable cancer, uh, all your plans are being shot to pieces, you've got the grief of seeing your young family and thinking, oh, I'll never, you know, I won't see my son graduate from high school or I'll never see grandkids or walk my daughter down the aisle or anything like this. And I got incredibly frail and depressed. And I think in the midst of all that, I'm starting to question what I'd believe to be true. Mm, mm. Uh, I was told I had no medical hope. Did that mean I actually had no hope? 
Because mm. I'd been trying to persuade people that there's actually a hope of life beyond death, mm. that, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and because he did that, we're able to uh, discover that there is more to life than just this life. And, and uh, I'm now thinking, well, I'm going to be dead soon. Yeah. Is that is true? It, is this true? We'll get to that in a moment. But yeah. the, the Cure released a song in 1992 called To Wish Impossible Things. So at that particular time, did you think a cure for your cancer seemed like an impossible wish? Oh, most definitely. Doctors don't hold the uh, omniscient, all-powerful kind of aura for me. They do for some people because I was married to one. <laughs> um, but I knew that they knew, that they understood a heck of a lot more than me. And this professor, uh, looking at my scans, understanding the nature of my cancer saying to me, there is no cure for your cancer, who am I to disagree? Mm, mm. Uh, and the weaker I got, the less hope I would have. Mm. So it's now more than 12 months since that sort of prognosis. What happened? Yeah, it's a lot more than 12 months, isn't it? Yeah. I talked about, you know, the ongoing chemo. So I began what this maintenance treatment and every three months I would have a CT scan. Look, in the first three months, it grew. But in the next three months, it shrunk back to where it started. Three months later, smaller again. Uh, it's, it was around the size of a large golf ball and, and then it got down to a large marble and then three months later, a small marble. And three months later, the size of a pea. And I remember getting an email from a mate who said, um, Macca, we're praying that it'll be a mustard seed next time, uh, which apparently is quite small. Mm -hmm. It's good having a doctor for a wife when you want scan results. <laughs> okay. um, my wife came in and she put it on the bed and said, read it. And I said, can't you tell me what it says? No, she said, just read it. And it, it gets to the very end and it says no evidence of tumour or cancer. This is 19 months later. I'm looking at a scan. The last sentence says no evidence of translated cancer. I said, is that saying what I think it's saying? She said, yeah. Um, better than a mustard seed, it was not visible. Now, now what I came to realise that they took the wind out of my sails <laughs> because no evidence of the cancer just means the photographs that we take with a CT scan don't show it anymore. So they couldn't say I'm cancer free and they used this language of NED, NED, no evidence of disease. Hmm. Uh, and that was 19 months after diagnosis. They said you've got to keep going on the chemo. How long? Well, as long as you live. See, at that point, I'm still thinking that's not going to be very long. Mm. Uh, but half a year goes by, another year, another year. I, I get to four years. Um, and I'd always thought, here was this completely unrealistic five-year marker. They, in, in cancer, one of the things they measure is five-year survival. Um, in my case, it was somewhere between one and five percent chance uh, of five-year survival. But I ended up making it. But at the four-year mark, I thought, I want to break from chemo. I just want to not have to live a two-weekly, three-weekly cycle where I can tell people in advance, no, I can't come to your party because I'm going to be sick in bed that day. Mm. And I haven't gone back. Mm. So you've stopped the chemo? Yeah. Wow. Now, the hope of a cure was almost impossible at one point. Yeah. But you did believe in heaven and you believed that you were going to a better place. So why were you sad then at the prospect of death? Well, that belief was being tested. Mm -hmm. I started to experience doubts 
and fears and uncertainty in areas where I probably thought, yeah, I got this nailed, you know, yeah. I worked this out, I've been persuaded of this. So I became a Christian. That is, I was persuaded that Jesus was crucified so as to take the price for my rejection of God and that he was raised again from the dead. I, I became convinced of that when I was at university. Yeah. And I grew up in a home going to church, but when I got to uni and that was away from home, I had to work out, have I just inherited this belief hmm. or is it something that stands up? Yep. Like, are there reasons for it? And so I started like asking questions, reading books, uh, looking to find out, is there evidence there was a Jesus? Yes. Evidence that he was crucified? Yes. And not just in the Bible, in all sorts of places. Is there evidence that he rose from the dead? And as I dug into that, it seemed to me to be more credible that he had risen from the dead than that there was a conspiracy or a lie or that people had got it wrong. Everything seemed to point towards Jesus being raised from the dead. Now, that's where Christian hope comes from. Mm -hmm. Christian hope can only be beyond death if there's evidence of resurrection from the dead. Mm. Um, and see, I, I'm being placed in a very confronting dilemma. That is, if there's no hope of a cure, that means I'm going to die. Yeah. And if death is all there is, that means there's no hope either medically and there's no hope... Beyond that. ...forever. Yeah. Uh, and so I started to go back and ask those same questions mm. over again. Did you feel guilty as a pastor of a church, then now in some ways almost rediscovering your faith again? No, I didn't, because I, I, it's what you do with the doubt that matters. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's this kind of dumb idea that you've got to be 100% certain of on every kind of count for something to be true. Mm. I believe in the truth of people's love for me, especially my wife, my, mm -hmm. my children, my parents. Am I 100% scientifically sure of that? No, it's not in that realm, is it? No, it's just a different type of um, truth, I suppose. So what did you discover? I discovered that the Jesus that I had put my trust in, uh, that there was credible evidence that he'd been raised from the dead. I'd describe myself as believing more than simply a fact of history, but believing in the person, a person who had been raised from the dead and is alive now, a person who I can have a relationship with now, that is a person who is in fact God, that I will meet one day. And I believe that what I had believed previously stood up again and my confidence being tested by the reality of my own mortality, uh, I think I, I've come through that even stronger, even more persuaded. Do mm. I have doubts sometimes? Yes. But I think it's, it's worth backing, it's worth trusting in with your life. But if God is good and powerful, why did he let you go through so much pain? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, there's an assumption built into that question, and that is that to suffer is inherently bad that everything should be absolutely rosy and sweet and perfect. And if something difficult happens or if there's struggle or if there's pain or if there's sadness, that is necessarily wrong. Um, I went to a hospital not far from here every three weeks to have something that affected me dramatically physically and mentally that was to my detriment. I would poison myself and suffer the consequences I deliberately committed to do something that was going to cause pain and suffering. Why would I do that? Because the bigger picture mm. shows that there's really good things coming out of that. Um, now, I don't know what all the really good things are 
in terms of my experience with cancer, but I do believe that God is able to work through all of that for good. Mm. And I can tell you some of the good already. What sort of good? Um, I have come to appreciate life more than I did. I've come not to take for granted the fact that I have all the time in the world to do whatever I want. I've been reminded of the importance of, of my family and my friends. I've found joy in simple things like being able to walk on a beach or catch a wave that I would have previously taken for granted. I've actually come to delight in the fact that I can heave up my lungs and have air come in and enjoy life. All those things I took for granted, never gave them much thought at all. But deeper than that, I, I, I think in looking back at, at what God has done for me and knowing that God's walked with me in a sense, I know it's a metaphor, but he's kind of been with me through the whole journey and helped me, gives me a deeper appreciation for God. I've been able to encourage and support and advocate for other people with cancer. Hmm. I, I, Which you wouldn't have been able to do had you not no, experienced No, and I wouldn't that. have volunteered for it either. Not if I'd known that the best way to get it was to get a stage four <laughs> diagnosis of lung cancer. Mm. Um, but people don't say to me, what are you talking about cancer for? What do you know about cancer? Mm. It's, it's given me an opportunity and I've been blessed by other people and I hope that I've been able to bless other people mm. as well. We're asking Dave McDonald today's big question. Is there hope beyond cure? And the New Testament book in the Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, uh, who was a leader in the early church, says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 19, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people are to be most to be pitied. Now, you'd preached this for a long time, Dave. Did you face the realisation that perhaps you'd been preaching a lie for 20 years? Well, I certainly asked the question. Yeah. yeah. Christianity allows itself to be scrutinised. It's not a private, secret, mystical message. Yeah. It's something that says events happened in history that have changed the world forever. Events have happened in history that can change each and every individual life forever. That's open to scrutiny. Mm. Um, and the... The, the point to disprove Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. So you disprove Christianity by proving Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Yeah. Simple. Uh, I've heard people speak in the name of Christianity and say, hey, look, it doesn't matter if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In fact, it doesn't even matter if there never was a Jesus because the ideas are nice. Mm. But the Bible itself and... That's what it and, says here. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. Absolutely. And in fact, worse than that, we're made... We're liars. To be pitied. Because so Why would you be made to be liars or pitied? Well, because we're living in fantasy land. And how many people believe that that's what Christianity is? Christianity is, yeah. We're living in fantasy land. But I want to say, no, we're actually living in the light of reality. Uh, because if there's a God who made us, a God who wants to relate to us, a God who's, who's acted to forgive us at the cost of the death of Jesus, a God who has raised him from the dead and offered through our trusting him, hope for all eternity, if, if that is real, then it would be fantasy life to ignore it. Mm. Well, Paul goes on to basically claim that in verse 20, where he says that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what convinced you afresh that this was the case? I, I think that nothing had changed from when I first believed, uh, that the reasons there were the same. Um, you know, there, there are historical and circumstantial and, and eyewitness uh, accounts 
that I took seriously to believe that the most credible explanation was that Jesus did live, that he did die, that he was raised from the dead. Uh, nothing changed in that. that. That same evidence stood up to subsequent scrutiny. But there's another side to it as well, and that is I felt the presence of God at work in my life, in the experiences that I was going through, in the decisions that I was making, in the, in the dramatic turnaround from what I'd hoped for. I got glimpses of, of God being at work in the midst of that. So who do you thank for your cure? Is it God or modern science? Yes. What do you mean by that? I, I mean that I think God is equally capable of working through the surgeons and physicians and oncologists as he is in working through something that no human can or maybe ever will be able to explain. Mm. Dave, you wrote a blog, Macarisms, uh, not Macarena. What's Ma- the Macarena? Right? <laughs> I can show you later if you like. Um, you wrote a blog, Macarisms, which has a photo with a rock with the words written on it, live each day as if it's your last. Now, that's often used as a motivational meme to encourage people in some ways to live for today. Why did you put that photo there? Uh, because it reflected a verse in the Bible that became very precious to me within weeks of being diagnosed. And it's in Psalm 90 where it says, teach us to number our days that we might have hearts of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. It's not talking about quantity and ticking them off, it's about making everyone count. It's about recognising that our lives are a gift from God to be used and I'm not going to get that back in this world. The reality is even if I was or am cured from cancer, one day something is going to catch up with me and I want to live in the meantime in a way that, that makes a difference, in a way that's purposeful. A way that brings encouragement to people and help to people and in a way that, if I can, that honours God. Mm. So, Dave, now when you imagine death, what does it look like? Because it really stared you in the face in a very real sense when you had that diagnosis. But now when you think about death, what does it look like? The reality is I do have some fear of dying. Mm. I've seen people die and it's not a happy or a pleasant thing. But more significantly... I look forward to meeting the God who's made me and rescued me and forgiven me. And I look forward to sharing in what he's got to come. Uh, I, I believe in that God and I believe that I'm relating to a real God and that I'll be able to do that without pain or suffering or cancer or death in the resurrection. So Dave, is there hope beyond cure? My word. God's word. God says you can trust him on this. Ultimately, for each and every one of us, one day there will be no cure. But that doesn't mean that all hope is lost if we trust in Jesus. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, is there hope beyond cure? From 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Dave McDonald.